The Bob Murphy Show, episode 212. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show first of all let me apologize for the relative sparseness of episode frequencies lately. I had a lot going on and I hope to be cranking out episodes more in the near future. So thanks for your patience. What I want to talk about today is the U.S. gold standard and I'm going to be doing it in waves or layers. Ogres have layers, donkey. And back in the day, I could do the donkey voice too, but it's been a while since I've tried. So let me just... Stick with the Mike Myers. Um, So what we're going to be doing is going through three op-eds, basically, that I I wrote recently. So it was the 50th anniversary of the so-called Nixon shock. So back on August 15th, 1971, Richard Nixon infamously announced a 90-day freeze on wages and prices, other prices, and because wages are prices, and uh, some other things, but the main thing he did that people to this day still remember is that he formally closed the gold window, that that's when he announced the U.S. government would no longer be redeeming dollars for gold. And thus, that was sort of the collapse of the Bretton Woods system, although people say the Bretton Woods system didn't formally end until a year or two after that. But for all practical purposes, the world was now on a fiat money standard from August 15th, 1971 onwards. All right. So like I say, I I have written three different articles in different outlets. Um, One was for the Fraser Institute, one was for the Independent Institute, one's for the Mises Institute, covering different aspects of this story based on you know, I kind of looked ahead to say, where are they going to place these things? You know, who's the audience going to be? And so I was giving different levels of detail or, t- or different parts of the narrative. So let me, I'll, I'll work in that fashion for you folks here. And it's, I think there's more to it than probably you realize. Okay. And so this, this should serve as a nice introduction in case you really don't know about this stuff. You, you know, yeah, I think the dollar used to be tied to gold or something, but I don't really know. So that'll help with that. But also, even if you're someone who has been a Rothbardian your entire life, I think I can fill in some of the gaps and the things that used to trouble me. Right? So at the basic level, like I say, what everybody knows who talks about this is that Richard Nixon in August, on August 15th, 1971, said the U.S. government is no longer going to be redeeming dollars for gold. Prior to that, under the so-called Bretton Woods arrangement, so back during World War II, in 1944, at that point, the Allies knew they were going to win. It was just a matter of time. The U.S. hosted a conference in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. So that was the, you know, the location at this posh resort. And 
hammering out what's the post-war monetary arrangement going to be. And so that's what came out of that was called the Bretton Woods Agreement. So that arrangement said that, my understanding is in the beginning, they had this idea that it was going to be based on the British pound and the American dollar. But then as time passed and the UK got eclipsed by the United States, that then it kind of just became de facto US dollar. But the way it ended up working out in practice when it was in full swing, the Bretton Woods framework, that is, is that all the major governments, instead of stockpiling gold as the reserve sort of backing up their currencies, which was true under the classical gold standard before World War I, that under Bretton Woods, it was basically a dollar standard where the major governments of the world, what they would accumulate to back up their money were dollar-denominated assets and specifically like treasuries, right? So bonds issued by the U.S. federal government that said we owe the owner of this security a certain number of U.S. dollars, you know, payable on this date or whatever, okay? And so that was the way the other governments of the world could show that their own currency was sound was because they could intervene in the currency markets if they wanted to and maintain a fixed exchange rate between their own currency and the U.S. dollar. All right, so that was part of the Bretton Woods framework is that all the currencies of the world were tied at a fixed exchange rate to the U.S. dollar. All right, so the, the, it, under Bretton Woods, you did not have so-called floating currencies. And so, for example, if a country ran a big trade deficit with the U.S., or sorry, the other way around, if the U.S. ran a big trade deficit with some other country, you know, under the old classical gold standard system, ultimately what would probably happen is the U.S. would end up shipping a bunch of gold across the ocean to that other country. And that's the way you would settle up, as it were. But under the Bretton Woods framework, the other countries were encouraged to just accumulate dollar-denominated assets. So, you know, some other country, I'm just making these numbers up, but let's say France sells $10 billion more of goods to the U.S. than Americans sell to the French in a given year. Instead of the U.S. having to send $10 billion worth of gold over to France, France would just accumulate $10 billion more in treasuries. And that's the way we would, quote, pay for that trade deficit, okay? And why would these foreign governments be willing to do this? Well, because the U.S. said, don't worry, the dollar is always as good as gold because we stand ready under the Bretton Woods framework to redeem dollars for gold at the rate of $35 per troy ounce. All right, so you give us $3,500, we'll give you 100 ounces of gold. That's the way it worked. Now, this offer was only available to other central banks. Right? It, it wasn't just that citizens in general could just show up and say to the U.S. government, hey, here's a bunch of dollars, give me some gold. But no, this special redemption ability, again, was only offered to other central banks. All right, and so that is what Richard Nixon ended in August of 1971. He said, not even other central banks now get to redeem their dollars for gold. And then having done that, you could then see the ramifications. So let me give you some statistics here. And this is from the article I wrote for the Fraser Institute. 
Okay, so first of all, Richard Nixon in his television address on August 15th said to the American public, let me lay to rest the bugaboo of what is called devaluation. And then dot, 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 I'm skipping some stuff. If you are among the overwhelming majority of Americans who buy American-made products in America, your dollar will be worth just as much tomorrow as it is today. The effect of this action will be to stabilize the dollar. Okay, so, you know, he's assuring people this is just a technical thing. And he did mention that, yeah, if you're going to buy foreign goods, maybe the prices are going to go up a little bit. But if you're buying U.S.-made stuff, don't worry, this, this isn't going to affect that. Well, no, that's not true. So from in, in early 1970, gold was $35 an ounce. Ten years later, in early 1980, it had risen to $800 per ounce. And then you can just say, okay, well, that's the price of gold, but what about regular consumer prices? So looking at the, the official U.S. CPI, Consumer Price Index, 12-month increases in that went from about 6% in early 1970 to more than 14% in early 1980. Okay, so you can see how it's not the case that this stabilized the dollar by any stretch. In fact, this unleashed what would become known as stagflation, where we'd have high price inflation, even consumer price inflation, and high unemployment at the same time, which in the old school Keynesian framework should have been impossible. Right Under a crude version of Keynesianism, policymakers have to choose between either high inflation or high unemployment, but you shouldn't have to suffer through both at the same time, right? Because the way you ostensibly cure high inflation is you got to stimulate aggregate demand. Okay, so that's the no what I just went through there sort of the normal thing you would say to somebody who has no clue about this, doesn't you know realize, what's fiat money? Why would anyone want to tie their currency to gold? Doesn't that, right? So that's the kind of stuff you would say. And, you would, and, and that's probably how I used to talk about it. And like I say, that's even what I wrote in this piece, again, that was intended for a pretty broad audience and it was going to be marketed in Canada. And so, you know, I couldn't assume that the reader knew too much about US monetary history. But what's interesting about that is... And this is what always troubled me. So, you know, I, I remembered those narratives after I had been steeped in Austrian economics. And the thing that always troubled me was, well, wait a minute. If the dollar was tied to gold up until August 1971, and then we're talking about, oh, look at how much, you know, there was stagflation after that. And you can see the danger of fiat money. But wait a minute. It's not like consumer price inflation was 0% before 1971. Like the statistics I just gave you, in 1970, in early 1970, the 12-month change in CPI was about 6%, right? So right now, 6% CPI inflation would be deemed way too hot. And yet that's what was prevailing even back before Nixon formally closed the gold window, right? And so, like I say, I, I just know that I personally never fully was comfortable with that, that I, you know, I, I believed what we were saying and everything, but I knew there had to be more to the story. And if somebody had challenged me, whatever, 20 years ago, if somehow the idea of Nixon closing the gold window came up and said, okay, but you know, since the dollar was tied to gold up until 1971, shouldn't CPI have been roughly stable from, you know, whatever, 18, the 1800s up through 1971. Okay. And so 
that's now what I'm going to try to explain in the rest of this podcast episode is to, to give more explanation and nuance so you can see, because I'm in a much better position now where I personally feel comfortable understanding how the, all these things fit together. So the good news is I think the Austrian libertarian version of history is, is correct or interpretation of history is correct, but let me just fill in some of the gaps. And by the way, I'm not here claiming that this was all my discovery. Like if you read like Rothbard and Joe Salerno, I know have a lot of essays and things talking about the different versions of the gold standard and how, you know, certainly the Bretton Woods framework by no means was a genuine gold standard. And even what prevailed in 1913 before World War I, even though that's, that falls under the period that's described as the classical gold standard, and that was way more robust than like the Bretton Woods framework, for example. Even so, what the average American, for example, experienced in terms of the money in 1913 was not nearly, quote, as hard a money as what the average American experienced in 1855, for example. All right, so let me just give you some of the history. So here now I'm drawing on the op-ed I wrote for the Independent Institute and then the subsequent piece that I wrote for Mises.org. If you want to read those. So all this stuff, folks, is bobmurphyshow.com slash 212 if you want to uh, see some of these articles. Okay, so let me maybe give you a brief history lesson that from, you know, the, the founding of the United States. So first of all, the 13 colonies were British and they hence were officially on the same system is the UK, the, you know, the pound sterling, you know, the using shillings and things like that as, as, the, as the money, but they were, it was pretty wide open, okay? And so coins from other countries would circulate among the colonists and eventually the Spanish dollar came to be used, like it was the most popular one. And so that's why early Americans tended to think in terms of dollars, and so when, you know, there's the revolution and then there's the period of the Articles of Confederation and then there's the Constitutional Convention. And so now we have the, the modern American Republic and the politicians, statesmen, whatever term you want to use, who were then going to institute regulations concerning money. They picked the U.S. dollar. You know, they picked the, the term dollar is that that unit because of Again, the popularity of the Spanish dollar that had been circulating. All right, so that's that's why they chose dollar and not pound, for example. Okay, so that's where that came from. Now, originally, the dollar was defined, and this was in the Coinage Act of 1792. The dollar was defined as either, you ready, folks? 371.25 grains of pure silver or as 24.75 grains of pure gold. So now notice, if you're good at arithmetic, those two numbers, it's a 15 to 1 ratio. Right? In other words, it's exactly 15 times more grains of silver that you would need to constitute a dollar versus how many grains of gold you would need to constitute a dollar according to that definition. All right, And so that's what established a 15 to 1 ratio between gold and silver. 
And the reason they picked that is they wanted to encourage a bimetallic standard, right? The U.S. authorities wanted Americans in these early days of the Republic to use both gold and silver. And so the idea is, you know, for large purchases, you would use gold coins. And then for the, the change or smaller purchases, you'd have silver. And, and so, you know, the, the coins had to bear some resemblance to the market exchange ratio. And so they picked 15 to one because at the time when they made this legislation, that's what the world ratio was. Now, eventually it moved to more like 15 and a half to one. And so because under the U.S. framework, it was locked in at 15 to one, then that caused things to move. And so people just used silver from about 1810 until 1834, according to Rothbard. Okay, so from 1810 to 1834, only silver coins were used in commerce because silver effectively was being overvalued, right? That the, that the according to the official U.S. ratios, silver, gold was only 15 times more valuable than silver. But in reality, world prices, gold was 15 and a half times more valuable. So silver was relatively worth more compared to gold, according to the official U.S. prices in dollars. And so that's why if you were going to buy something quoted in dollars, you would use your silver coins because they would fetch more than they would if you melted them down and tried to just, you know, do things that way. All right. And, and you would likewise be silly to spend your gold coins in commercial transactions for things quoted in dollars, in U.S. dollars, because again, that you, you wouldn't be getting as much as you would if you melted the stuff down. Okay. So that's what happened? This is called Gresham's Law, if you're familiar with that, but I don't want to go too far afield and talk too much about Gresham's Law right now. But that's what would happen. And then they changed in the 1830s, they changed the gold content of the dollar and then it flipped it and it was the other way around. And then gold coins became the ones that were used and the, the silver disappeared. All right. So it was the Coinage Acts of 1834 and 1837 that changed the gold content of the dollar down to about 23.22 grains of pure gold and it left silver unchanged. And so that was close to a 16 to one ratio. And so now again, that was flipped the other way that the actual world price was close to 15 and a half to one. And so then by the U S government changing the gold content of the dollar, it went from an implicit 15 to one ratio to close to a 16 to one. And so it flipped it from a de facto silver standard to a de facto gold standard. Okay. Even though officially the whole time it was a bimetallic standard. All right. But the important thing besides these minutiae that I want you to realize is from the early days of the Republic up until the civil war, right? So, you know, 1861, the U S federal government did not print green pieces of paper that were marked U.S. dollars, right? So the official currency, if you will, the official money produced by the U.S. federal government only consisted of gold and silver coins. A brief parenthetical remark here. The thing that's the possible exception to that is there were treasury notes that were first used in the War of 1812, and they were short-term debt instruments that yielded interest, but they weren't legal tender. 
okay? But small denomination versions of these did circulate. It was the 1815 issues of them. And among some Americans, apparently these things were used as like a form of quasi money. Okay, so that's, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because there's an economics article published somewhere where this guy makes the case that that was the first paper money that the federal government issued. All right. So again, it's, it's a borderline case, but it kind of is the exception that proves the rule that the U S government, again, to repeat, did not issue green pieces of paper printed upon which it said, you know, so, so many U S dollars before the civil war that did not happen. Again, one way you could think about that is, well, how would they know who's, portrait to put on it, right? <laughs> in the beginning, they don't know who the presidents are going to be, right? Okay, so that's what they did. So, so you, instead, and this is the, the other sort of thing to blow your mind to realize just how different that system was, it's not that the U.S. authorities decided every so often, oh, during this period, this is how many new dollars we are going to create and put into circulation. That was not something the U.S. officials did. Again, what they did is they defined what the dollar was in terms of the gold or silver content. And then the U.S. Mint stood ready to create gold and silver coins stamped on their faces with the appropriate number of dollars or fractions thereof, right? So like a quarter dollar was 25 cents. That's why you call it a quarter, All right? So it had the silver that was one-fourth. How many grains of silver counted as one dollar? And then that coin would be a quarter of a dollar, right? So the determination of how many gold and silver coins were going to be stamped into existence wasn't something that the authorities directly determined. Instead, they just announced to the world, these are the ratios for what a dollar is, or these are the amounts of gold and silver content for what constitutes a dollar. And then we stand ready to create them. You know, there could be small fees for, for, for the service, but you had what was called free coinage of gold and silver, meaning anybody who presented the right amount of raw gold could have it stamped into, for example, $20 gold eagle coins or, or double eagle, I should say. All right. Or again, if you brought the right amount of silver in raw form, they would turn it into silver coins stamped with the appropriate, you know, $1 pieces or quarter pieces or dimes or what have you. Okay, so notice that that, make sure you, you get that distinction, right? Because I remember when I was younger, I thought what, quote, the gold standard meant was that the government still printed green pieces of paper that were called dollars or then, you know, more modern times, electronic creation of dollars from the Federal Reserve. But if people turn those things in, then the government had to give you gold, you know, the physical gold, and that that was the check on inflation. So that's true, you know, under Bretton Woods, at least vis-a-vis other central banks, and even under the classical gold standard. But I'm saying in this early period before the Civil War, it was a much more serious check. The U.S. authorities were not printing green pieces of paper and like, oh boy, you guys better not be too reckless because if you are then, you know, it's going to come back to bite you when people turn these green pieces of paper in and drain your vaults of gold or, or silver at this point. That, no, it was more serious than that, that the only official dollars in existence were in the physical form of gold and silver coins that were, you know, full body weight. All right. And so 
Americans were walking around with gold and silver coins in their pockets, and that's what you would use to buy stuff with. Now, what could happen is banks, you know, regular commercial banks, and the, you know, there were national banks, and the second one, Andrew Jackson famously killed, but regular commercial banks could issue banknotes. And so Americans could have pieces of paper on them that they would then go into stores and buy stuff with uh, that, you know, were called dollars or, or at least, you know, would have been viewed as equivalent to dollars. Like, oh, something costs $3. Well, here I have, here's three bank notes that are each, you know, printed to be worth a dollar a piece. You could do that, but that wasn't officially money, right? So if you understand these terms, that wasn't base money. That wasn't part of M0. The way nowadays, you know, a $20 bill, U.S. Federal Reserve note is officially money. That's not what a bank note was. That was equivalent to today if you have a checking account balance, right? So if, if Bank of America says you have $100 on deposit with them, Bank of America owes you that money, right? And if you go up to Bank of America and say, give me my money, I'm withdrawing my $100, they legally owe you a $100 bill. And if they give it $100 bill to you. Now you're holding a green piece of paper, a Federal Reserve note that's got a picture of Benjamin on it. Now that thing is base money. That's legal tender money. But strictly speaking, just you having $100 on deposit with Bank of America, that's not base money. That's part of M1, if you know those, again, those categories. It's not M0. So most merchants in most settings treat the two as equivalent. They'll accept debts owed to you by major banks as if they're just as good as actual legal tender currency created by the U.S. government or by the Federal Reserve or by the U.S. Treasury, depending on, you know, how you want to think about it, okay? But they're not the same thing, legally speaking, and even economically, you know, Mises makes distinctions between money in the narrower sense and money in the broader sense, okay? So I'm saying back in whatever, 1810, that people walking around with gold and silver dollar coins in their pockets, that was the base money. And then if you had notes that you could use to buy stuff and the notes were marked with the right, you know, the appropriate number of dollars on their faces, strictly speaking, that wasn't really a dollar. If the notes said, you know, $1, really what that was, was a redemption ticket. It was a claim on the bank that issued that piece of paper saying anybody who presents this banknote to one of our branches is entitled to the immediate payment, for example, is in a silver coin of one dollar. Okay. And so that's so to the extent that merchants trusted that bank to honor that pledge, then if you walked into the store and tried to buy something that was a dollar and you put that banknote down, they would accept it if they, you know, if they looked at it and said, oh yeah, I know this bank. I trust it. Okay. Whereas if you put down something where you scribbled on a piece of paper, oh, this is a banknote from the bank of Jim Smith, that merchant might say, I don't know what the heck this is. Get out of here with this. Okay. So you see, I hope I'm not belaboring the point unnecessarily, but I really wanted to stress that there was a qualitative difference in this era before the Civil War when the U.S. authorities did not 
as a matter of, quote, monetary policy, decide how many dollars were going to be in existence. It wasn't like they were looking at the rate of inflation and thought, oh, we better hold up. And it wasn't even that they said, uh-oh, we've created too many paper dollars and this is draining our gold co- you know, gold in the vault. And so therefore we better ease up on the printing press for a bit and let things recover. No, it was just they said to the world, if you want more dollars, bring us the right amount of gold or silver, and these are the ratios we will use, or these are the amounts we will use to stamp them into coins, less, you know, a, a transaction fee. And that's, that's how it was determined. And so you can think through how that would work, like the economics of it, that, you know, as the, as the economy grew and population grew, if there weren't enough dollars in the form of coins in existence, that would tend, you know, prices quoted in dollars would start to fall. And so then the world price of gold quoted in dollars would start to fall. And so, you know, below what the mint said. And so then people would want, you know, there'd be an arbitrage opportunity, right? That you would go and, you know, get the raw gold at cheaper world prices and then bring it to the authorities and stamp it into coins that had a higher dollar price than what you had to pay for them, right? So in other words, if there were a situation, let me put it this way, if there were a situation where a $20 gold eagle, double gold eagle had less than $20 worth of gold in it, then there would be an arbitrage opportunity for people to go get that amount of gold for less than $20 and then get it stamped into a coin that now officially was $20 that you could go around in the United States and buy things with, and it would be worth $20. Right. And so just thinking through the logic of that, how would that happen? You know, what would happen if you kept doing that? Well, you're withdrawing gold in its bullion raw form from circulation and you're increasing the number of official dollars, right? By having, by your turning raw gold into coin US dollar gold, and so that would tend, you know, now there's more dollars in existence. And so the prices of everything quoted in dollars tends to get pushed up, including the price of gold in the world market until, the, you know, parity is restored. And then that arbitrage would disappear. It would no longer, you would no longer be able to make money simply by buying gold on the world market and then presenting it to the U.S. Mint to be stamped into dollar coins, dollar denominated coins, Right. And likewise, the other, it works the other way around too. If for some reason there were too many gold coins in the form of dollars that were created, or if you want to like say for some reason the demand to hold dollars suddenly fell for whatever reason, and so the prices of things quoted in dollars went up such that the world price of gold was higher, you know, quoted in dollars, was higher than the implicit mint price, well, then what would happen, right? So now it's the opposite situation. You've got like a $20 double eagle, right? So you've got an actual gold coin that has stamped on it 20 US dollars. It's double legal gold coin. But the gold content of that is actually worth whatever, $25 in the world market. So what are you going to do with that thing? You're not going to go spend it. Right, you're not going to go to the store and there's something that's $20 and you say, oh, here's my double eagle 
gold coin that's worth 20, that's, you know, on the face of it says $20, I'll buy that from you. That would be silly. Instead, what you would do is you would take that coin and melt it down and then sell the raw gold for $25, which, you know, in this hypothetical example, we just said by assumption that the gold content of that double eagle is worth, is fetching $25 on the world market, right? And so then I'll think through the logic. If, if lots of people are doing that, what is that doing? It's reducing the amount of dollars in existence, right? Because people are melting down gold coins that have U.S. dollars stamped on their faces. And then they're turning it back into raw gold and then selling that, you know, in the commodity markets, the metals markets. Okay. And so what does that do? By reducing the amount of dollars, now dollar prices fall. And by increasing the quantity of raw gold available, that makes the price of gold fall. Okay, so both things interact to bring down the dollar price of gold quoted in the world market. And that's what you want to have happen until, again, that arbitrage disappears. Okay, so that's kind of the, the framework that prevailed, and you see how that works. So, again, the important thing is there's a sense in which the, the, the public at large endogenously determines, if you want to use a fancy phrase, the quantity of dollars under that framework. All right, so that, that all went out the window in the Civil War or the war between the states or the war of northern ag- aggression, depending on your perspective, where the Union famously started issuing greenbacks, right? And they called them greenbacks because they were notes that were green on the, on the side. Okay, so, and that was fiat money. And they were using that to pay for the war effort. And the Confederacy did the same thing. They also resorted to the printing press. And the price inflation in the Confederacy was worse than the North, but it was bad in the, you know, in the Union too. And then they eventually, just to round out the history lesson, they passed some legislation and saying by 1879, the U.S. dollar has to again be redeemable for gold according to the, you know, the new gold content of the dollar that they had defined in the 1834 and 1837 legislation, the coinage acts then. Okay. And that's what, where we get what most of you probably think of as, if you know some of this history that, oh yeah, under the classical gold standard before World War I, the ratio between gold to dollars was roughly $20 and 67 cents per troy ounce. All right. And so, that's the amount that got locked in under the um, the Gold Standard Act. I think it was 1905. Let me look that up for a second. 1905. Nope, it's 1900. I'm not sure where I thought that. Maybe something else happened. In, I'm sure something happened in 1905. But it was not. Yeah, so the Gold Standard Act of 1900, you know, form, codified all that. But again, this the dollar was convertible into gold. At the ratio, again, they they defined it in terms of grains, but it worked out to roughly $20.67 per troy ounce. And that was the amount that after they altered the gold content of the dollar in the 1830s, updating, you know, that 1792 coinage act. Okay, so again, big picture, up until from the founding of the Republic to 1861, the eve of the Civil War, the U.S. authorities did not print green pieces of paper 
that were U.S. dollars legal tender. That's not what they did. Instead, the public determined how many dollars were in existence in the form of either gold or silver coins. Then in the 1860s, well, 1865, they totally went off that printing up greenbacks. And then, so if you think about it, there were a huge number of dollars that were in existence that pushed up prices of things quoted in dollars. And if you go look at statistics of U.S. prices, you'll see a huge increase during the Civil War years. And then they wanted to return to the pre-war, pre-Civil War gold parity. So they actually had to have deflation, price deflation. And so they, you know, they had to wait for the increase in economic output. And off the top of my head, I'm not sure what they did with like the outstanding quantity of, of notes. I saw somebody come and give a presentation at Texas Tech on that stuff, but I don't remember the details enough. I don't want to even say anything right now because it's I'm not confident that I'm, I'm remembering it correctly. But I mean, what you could do is you could just raise tax revenue and then just burn the currency, right? And so like it's like the government would be eating that expenditure in order to help speed the process by which prices would fall such that you could then go back on converting the dollar to gold at the official ratio, right? Because in other words, they couldn't have done it in 1866, right? That in order to get the dollar going back to gold at $20.67 an ounce would have involved too rapid of a price deflation. It would have been, you know, it would have been too painful. And so instead they wanted to make it more gradual. And so that's why they passed legislation eventually just said, okay, we got to get it. We got to restore convertibility no later than 1879, which is what they did. All right. So also, in case you're wondering, silver had been demonetized. It was a gradual process, but the significant date was in 1873. All right. And that's, that's, you may have heard, that's called the crime of 73. All right. And that's when Congress discontinued the free coinage of the standard silver dollar. All right. And free coinage of fractional dollar silver coins like quarters and dimes and stuff that had actually ended back in 1853. Okay. So with a lot of this stuff, it's hard to make definitive statements because these things are all, you know, it wasn't just, Oh, this one thing happened. That's all I need to know. It was like, there's nuances, the more you, you get into this stuff. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to strike a balance here, folks, between just giving you the big picture, but also not saying something that's technically not true. <laughs> I try to avoid false statements here on the Bob Murphy show. Okay. So, Incidentally, people might, this is why it's hard to say, when did the U.S. officially join, you know, be, become part of the classical gold standard era? And in the uh, thing I wrote for my Mises book called Understanding Money Mechanics, the chapter there on the gold standard, I make the case that, well, it's, it's either 1873 or 1879, right? So in 1873, when the U.S. officially stopped the free coinage of silver, of the silver dollar. Clearly, the U.S. is no longer on a silver standard at that point. However, would you say, oh, so that's the point at which the U.S. now just went from a bimetallic standard to a monometallic standard, namely a gold standard? Well, yes and no, because at that point, the dollar was still not freely convertible to gold at the official rate because, you know, what happened, you know, they, they suspended specie redemption, which is the, the, the formal phrase you would use 
during the Civil War and as of 1873, they still weren't back to it yet. They were still waiting for, you know, prices to fall to make it practical to go back to redeeming dollars for gold at the, you know, the, the new rate that had been set in place by the 1830s legislation. Okay, so by 1879, once the dollar now was freely convertible back and forth between gold at the $20.67 per ounce rate, now you can clearly say, yep, the U.S. is on a gold standard. Because, and now they're you know, redeeming dollars for gold. Okay, so that's the reason for the ambiguity when you say, what was the, what was the starting and end date of the U.S. participation in the classical gold standard? It's either 1873 or 1879, and then everybody agrees it ends in 1914 because that's when the classical gold standard gets killed by World War I. Okay, so that's probably more than you need to know. Oh, I'm, I'm looking at my article here. There was even one more thing, <laughs> a nuance. So uh, in 1874, there were even more of official acts limiting the legal tender status of existing silver coins, okay? So... 1873 is what ended the free coinage of the silver dollar. And then in 18, by 1874, they were saying even existing silver coins, so, you know, dollars that had been created beforehand now no longer enjoyed legal tender status. All right. So that's clearly, you know, when you want to say when did silver stop being money in the United States, it's going to be either 1873 or 1874, depending on how you want to clock it. Hey folks, let's take a break from the discussion to talk about the resumption of the school year that for most of you is going to be starting in a little bit here, especially if you're homeschooling, but perhaps also in some other venues as well, this would work. I want to make sure you're aware of my textbook called Lessons for the Young Economist. So this was something I wrote a few years ago, published by the Mises Institute. It's, I think, ideally geared towards students who are seventh through 10th grades, let's say, but it also, adults could read it as well and younger students if they're precocious. And it's an introductory textbook that explains basic economics, covering things like free trade, drug prohibition, basic accounting principles. How does money work? Why do we have money? How do banks work? Things like that. What's wrong with price controls? And, uh, I think, especially like I say, if you're a homeschooling parent in particular, you should go ahead and check it out. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash young to see the link for my textbook, Lessons for the Young Economist. It's available in free PDF form for the Mises and so you can directly download it or you can pretty inexpensively order a physical copy of the book, which I think you probably will want to do, but go ahead and first peruse it in the PDF version. And then if you're a parent and your child is reading the book, what you're going to want to do is look at the teacher's manual as well. And so just go to bobmurphyshow.com slash young. That'll take you to the Mises Institute's page for lessons for the young economist. And then you'll see right there on the left side, there's a link that says, you know, click here for the teacher's manual or the teacher's edition, something like that. And then likewise, you go there, you can get the free PDF version of the book that I wrote for the teacher whose students are using lessons for the economist as a textbook. You know, it has further explanation of the topics, different ways you might try to motivate the material, quizzes, things like that. So again, if you're interested, bobmurphyshow.com slash young. Okay. So 
Notice, though, that already we, we see that it's not Richard Nixon came along and ruined the perfectly cool gold standard. That going looking at the period before the Civil War and then after, we can see there's a big difference. That before the Civil War, there weren't official notes issued by the government or by, you know, an official national bank or anything that were, you know, legal tender U.S. dollars. It was gold and silver coins that the public would determine the quantity of, of in existence. And then it was after, though, the Civil War, where now the public is used to the government producing green pieces of paper that they think of as dollars. And that's what you're going to use to go buy stuff at the store with. Okay. Now, during the classical period, the classical gold standard, again, let's say it's 1879 and 1914, there the dollar is redeemable in gold, is in gold not silver anymore, at the rate of $20.67 an ounce. And anybody could do that, by the way. Okay? So anybody had the right to go to the proper you know, U.S. authorities and turn over $2,067 in U.S. currency and get back 100 ounces of gold. That was ended during World War One, and all the major belligerents totally abandoned the gold standard because just like the U.S. had that locked in place during this, the heyday of the classical gold standard, you know, the U.K. had a certain redemption ratio of the British pound for gold, and that would imply fixed exchange rates between the U.S. dollar and the British pound. Okay, so the way it worked, just to give you specifics here, that as of 1913, just to pick a specific year before World War I, we've already said the U.S. government, $20.67 for an ounce of gold. The British government, on its part, Bank of England, would, would redeem it at 4.25 pounds per ounce of gold, right? So if you had four pounds, you know, 4.25 pounds, and turn that in, then you would get an ounce of gold from the British authorities, so if you just do the simple arithmetic, that works out to about $4.86 per British pound, right? So that was the f- implied fixed exchange rate between the U.S. dollar and the British pound during the era of the classical gold standard up to the eve of the First World War. And so that also was, a, was still a significant check on monetary inflation, right? Because if, if um, the U.S. authorities printed too many dollars, and notice now I'm talking about the U.S. authorities printing money, then it would set up an arbitrage that they print too many dollars. That makes in the foreign exchange market, instead of it being $4.86 for a British pound, maybe it goes up to $5 or $5.25, what have you. That's what's going to happen if they're printing too many dollars. And so at some point, you're going to hit what's called the gold export point, where it becomes profitable for speculators to start out with U.S. dollars, turn them into the authorities in the United States for gold, ship the gold across the Atlantic Ocean to London, then in London, give it to the Bank of England to get British pounds, at, you know, the official conversion ratio, then take those British pounds to the foreign exchange market and directly trade them for U.S. dollars, where by stipulation in this example, we're already getting, you know, we're getting like 525 or something. Right, so a British pound fetches you five twenty-five, five dollars and twenty-five cents, rather than four dollars and eighty-six cents. All right, and by doing that process, you end up with more dollars than you started out with. So that's why it's an arbitrage. 
it's a way to make money so long as, you know, nothing interrupts that process that I just told you about. And so just thinking through the logic of that, what happens, that means if the Americans print too many dollars during the classical gold standard, then it sets in motion an arbitrage such that speculators move gold out of U.S. vaults and into British vaults. And so that's why you got to be careful. And that's what people mean when they talk about the rules of the classical gold standard and how it was a check on the monetary inflation by the respective sovereign authorities because since they were pledging to the world to redeem their own sovereign currency for gold at a certain definite rate, then that implied fixed exchange ratios among all those currencies. And if in practice, any of them inflated too rapidly relative to its peers, it would lose gold out of its vaults into the vaults of the people that were more conservative. And so that just that kind of imposed discipline on the whole system. So again, once World War I breaks out, all the major belligerents go off that saying, no, we're not redeeming it anymore because there's a war on. And so they're printing money to pay for troops and materiel and so forth. The U.S. for its part actually was relatively good that the U.S. government didn't formally stop redeeming dollars for gold during World War I, but it, it wouldn't allow export. Okay. So specifically... In 1917, President Woodrow Wilson embargoed the export of gold, bullion, and coin. Okay, so that, again, but all the other major powers that participated in World War I, they, they totally went off and they were printing money like crazy and they weren't redeeming it at all. Whereas the U.S. government, again, like I said, technically maintained the $20.67 gets you an ounce of gold. Okay, so um, then... After World War I, the major belligerents try to go back on gold at the pre-war parity. And some argue that that was a huge mistake because it involves serious price deflation. And this is during the 20s. It leads to dislocations and so forth. And then one by one in the early 30s, the various countries start going off gold again. And in terms of the U.S., what famously happened is FDR wins the November 1932 election against Herbert Hoover. Roosevelt is inaugurated. And soon after being inaugurated, he infamously in April 1933 announces that he's confiscating all the monetary gold in the United States under threat of up to a 10-year prison sentence and a $10,000 fine. And this is back when $10,000 meant something. Okay, so this wasn't just a minor technical thing. I mean, this was serious. And then he revalued gold officially to make it $35 an ounce by 1934, which implies a 41% devaluation, right? To go from $20.67 to $35 an ounce is a 41% devaluation. But it's not that, oh, okay, now that we just, you know, debased the dollar 41%, now we're back on the gold standard at the, at the new ratio. No, that's not what happened. Americans still couldn't hold gold. And in fact, it was illegal even for you to do something like, okay, I got to pay you in dollars, but let's say you're going to, I don't know, cut my lawn every day for the next year. And then in December, I'm going to pay you and we're going to go look at what the world price of gold is at that time. And then the number of dollars I owe you is going to be based on that, right? So I'm implicitly paying you in gold 
It's just, I, you know, the, the amount of dollars I owe you is going to be based on the world price, of, the dollar price of gold and determine the world markets. So it's effectively, you know, because you, you're, you're getting the number of dollars that would fetch you that amount of gold if you left the country and went somewhere where they allowed you to buy gold with dollars, right? You couldn't even, contracts that had those types of gold clauses in them were not legally enforceable, right? So they really, under FDR, were trying to get Americans to stop using gold as the money, to stop even thinking about gold as the money and to just think in terms of dollars, all right? And again, they used massive amounts of coercion to make that happen. So this idea that, oh, we tried the gold standard and it didn't work, and that's why the Americans left gold in 1930. No, Americans didn't, quote, leave gold. FDR said, you better turn your gold over or I'm going to throw you in prison. It's sort of like saying, under Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, Americans decided they didn't like cocaine anymore. Like, that's not really what happened. Okay. And so then, again, after World War II, you've got Bretton Woods, where the U.S. does agree we're going to be redeeming dollars for gold at the new $35 per ounce rate, but it only extends that privilege to other central banks around the world. It's still not the case that regular citizens can turn in dollars for gold. And then even that tepid pledge they reneged on in August 15th, 1971, when Nixon said, you know what, we're throwing in the towel. We can't keep this up. Okay, so there's the, the history. And so now I'm in a position to explain, you know, circling back to the misgivings I had had all along, what the, you know, the uneasiness with our official store when we just talked about Nixon and, you know, how that unleashed the printing press. And I was like, well, wait a minute, why would price inflation? So let me read you some statistics here. If we look at, it would have been good if I had some earlier statistics, but to get stuff from like the pre-Civil War era, it, it gets more uh, dubious because they didn't have the records back then. You have estimates and stuff, of course, but what I did find that was maintained at the FRED website, you know, the U.S., the, the Federal Reserve's, the St. Louis Fed's website that's got a lot of data and charting and stuff. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics has this series that's the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar in major cities, all right? And so it's an index, and so that's pretty good. And it, it went back to like 1913, I think. So that's why I used this one to make the point I wanted to make. So what I wanted to see was looking at the strength of the U.S. dollar during these different periods, right? Because my, my overall point here is to say, don't think of it as, oh yeah, the U.S. dollar was tied to gold up until August 15th, 1971. And at that point, there was all of a sudden a night and day shift. And now we have fiat money, whereas before we had hard money gold. That's, that, as, as I hope my little historical sketch has shown you in this episode, that's not the case at all. That there was a sense in which the money was much harder from 1792 up until 1860 when Americans were, you know, walking around with gold and silver coins in their pocket and that was the official money. And, and if they were to use paper that they thought of as being dollars, technically, you know, that that was just issued by banks and it was not nearly as official as a $20 gold coin, for example. And then during, you know, the classical gold standard when people were using paper notes that were issued either by, you know, the U.S. Treasury or when the Federal Reserve was created, 
you know, by the Federal Reserve called Federal Reserve notes. Even so, up until Roosevelt's action, people, anybody could still turn that stuff in, right? So that era was weaker. You know, the money was not nearly as strong and it wasn't really as much of a true gold dollar then as it was in 1850. But still, there was a sense in which that was still pretty robust because anybody could serve as a check upon the U.S. authorities. If they printed too many dollars, anybody on planet Earth had the legal ability to show up and say, here's, like I say, $2,067 in currency. Give me 100 ounces of gold. And so that's a pretty good check. And then after Roosevelt, though, regular citizens couldn't do that. And as was hammered out in the Bretton Woods framework, only other central banks could do it. So you can see how the check upon U.S. inflation in terms of creating dollars kept getting weaker and weaker in these different frameworks or regimes, whatever term you want to use, institutional setups. Okay. And so then you can see that in the statistics. So again, looking at the Bureau of Labor Statistics series and the purchasing power of the dollar in major cities. So here's what I found. I'm going to do three different seven-year periods and you'll see you know, why, why I picked these ones. So the first seven-year period I picked was from early. And when I say early, I mean it was January because the series is monthly, so I had to use months. So from January 1922 through January of 1929, right? So a seven-year stretch there in the roaring 20s. It's after the 2021 depression, but before the stock market crash of 29. So from, again, January 20, 1922 through January 1929, Looking at this particular series from the BLS, the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar was virtually constant. And if you look at the chart, it's not like it was bouncing way around and then on, you know, averaged out over time. It was actually just pretty stable through the whole period. And in fact, it fell less than 1% cumulatively over that seven-year period. And if you break it out, like the annualized change, it's like 0.1% or something per year. Okay? So again... Over a seven-year stretch, the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar fell less than 1% total over the whole period. I'm not, I'm not talking about an annual fall. I'm saying the U.S. dollar was virtually the same strength and purchasing power in January of 1929 as it had been in January of 1922. Okay? And this, again, was the period of the classical gold standard where the anybody could still turn in dollars for gold at $20.67. Sorry, I, I probably misspoke there. It was after World War I, so it wasn't the world classical gold standard, but did for in terms of U.S. policy, what the U.S. authorities were doing in this period was what they also had been doing before World War I. All right. Now let's do a different seven-year stretch. Let's go from January 1952 through January of 1959, right? So this is the heyday of the Bretton Woods framework, Okay. So here, the U.S. government stands prepared to redeem dollars for gold at $35 an ounce, but only to other central banks. And what do we see? During that seven-year period, the U.S. dollar lost a cumulative 9% of its purchasing power, or about a 1.2% per year drop. Okay, so see, you see, already we see a distinction. Again, from this, in the seven-year stretch during the 20s, when anybody could present their dollars for gold, the dollar was roughly constant in its purchasing power that whole period. But in the 50s, when now it's only other central banks are allowed to do it, 
the dollar over a seven-year stretch loses 9% total or about 1.2% a year. Okay, so from our modern vantage point, that's still not bad, but you can see it is slipping. And then let's do one final assessment. Let's look at January 1972 through January 1979. All right, so the Nixon shock, Nixon closes the gold window in August of 71. So by me picking January of 72, we are clearly in now the fiat money era. Bretton Woods is over with. The U.S. dollar is not tied to gold by any stretch. Nobody can turn in dollars for gold in this period. And so from this seven-year stretch, now what do we have? The U.S. dollar loses a cumulative 40% of its value over those seven years, which works out to about a 7% loss per year. All right, with rounding. Okay, so I hope now I've shed some light on the history and then what's going on with the price statistics and that you feel more comfortable with the basic narrative to realize that, oh, yes, it's, it makes sense that back when anybody could present dollars for gold, that really did tie the hands of U.S. authorities and the dollar roughly maintained its purchasing power. And I've seen statistics like that for the 1800s, for example, and it's largely the same story, that it's not that it's just perfect, that from year to year there's no fluctuations, but it's the sort of thing where if there's an inflationary boom, especially during a war if the government abandons convertibility, and then there's deflation or where consumer prices are actually and wholesale prices are actually falling year after year after year to get back to the old dollar gold, you know, parity. All right. And so one last loose joint in all this is that banks, as I said, could issue banknotes that were legal claims on the bank. So they were redeemable for dollars, but they weren't the same thing as the U.S. government saying, you know, we are guaranteeing these pieces of paper can be redeemed for gold or silver back in the, when it was a bimetallic standard. All right. And so this ties into Mises' theory of the business cycle or what he called the circulation credit theory of the trade cycle. All right. So remember in, in Mises' theory of money and credit, which came out in 1912, he was explaining the business cycle, not as something that central banks inflicted upon us. Rather, he said it was the commercial banks when they increased the quantity of what he called fiduciary media that were claims on money that were, you know, payable at par and immediately redeemable and nobody doubted their, you know, the fact that they would be redeemed. Nobody doubted them. You know, so they circulated in the community on par with regular narrow money. That's why Mises explained the business cycle. He said that when banks, commercial banks, issued a lot of those fiduciary media and the way that the banks would get them into the hands of the public was through loans, well, then that pushed down interest rates, right? Because they have to induce the public to borrow this new money into circulation. And so the only way to do that is to lower the interest rate compared to what it otherwise would have been. And then that screws things up. Mises said it much more eloquently, but that's what he was saying, right? Because the interest rate is a price. It means something. It's supposed to reflect time preferences and so forth. And so if the interest rate's supposed to be 4%, now the commercial banks create a bunch of new money and lend it into the hands of the public, and they have to lower interest rates to 1% to do so, well, now you know, prices are screwed up. Entrepreneurs think credit is cheaper than it really should be. 
and they start long-term projects because the interest rate is 1% instead of 4%, and not all those projects can be completed, right? Just because the bank's deciding to create more fiduciary media and lend them into the hands of the public doesn't create more genuine saving. It doesn't create more factories or farmland. And so you can't just all of a sudden have longer-term investment projects that can all be completed just because of commercial bank policy, right? So that's Mises' theory. And so notice, that's not about the government printing too many or stamping too many gold coins or silver coins, right? That has to do with the commercial banks and how money they issue in terms of either bank notes or checkable deposits. And so that was the one loose joint in the monetary framework. And like, again, just focusing on U.S. history, that's why even if you didn't have the wartime periods where the U.S. government suspended convertibility, suppose the U.S. government had maintained a strict gold dollar from 1792 all the way up to 1933, where the U.S. government didn't print green pieces of paper and Americans were just walking around with gold coins, you know, stamped with various denominations of dollars on their faces, depending on, you know, how heavy the coin was and how much actual gold was in it. That would not have totally ruled out the business cycle if commercial banks still were allowed to um, issue more paper notes that were guaranteed redemption tickets for gold coins, even if they didn't have the right amount in the vault, right? So that's, that's the loose joint. That's the sense in which the number of dollars measured by like M1 or M2 money in the broader sense and Mises terminology could expand or contract like an accordion, even if the U S authorities said, no, 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 we, you know, we read Rothbard, I guess they had a time machine and we're, you know, we're totally committed to hundred percent gold dollar. If the banks are allowed to issue fiduciary media, then that's the way the quote, the quantity of dollars in existence can expand. Even if the U S authorities aren't trying to let that happen. And even if, it's not, you know, the Americans went out and dug up more raw gold and brought them to the U.S. Mint to get stamped into coins that were marked, you know, $10 or $20 for gold eagle or double eagles, right? So that's the system. Now, one last thing I'll say, and this, you know, Larry White and George Selgin at this point would be having a conniption. And they would say, oh, wait, but as long as there's no special privileges given, and there's no central bank standing as lender of last resort and contracts are enforced you know, the commercial banks can't just willy-nilly issue more fiduciary media. There's natural check. And that's all true, right? And Mises, and this is where we get into debates about is Mises for against fiduciary media and all that stuff. Is he for against so-called free banking? That's fine. But I'm saying in terms of the pure theory of what does Mises say causes the business cycle, I am now quite comfortable in saying confidently that Mises said it is the commercial banks issuing fiduciary media, that that's the loose joint. And if they were prevented from doing so, there wouldn't be business cycles. And Mises thinks that's, that's the mistake that the British made with, so, with what was called Peel's Act, you know, something that Robert Peel introduced, where they strictly limited the issuance of banknotes, but they didn't limit checkable deposits or, or demand deposits that, you know, you could write on with checkbooks. Okay, so it's, Mises just thought that was a technical mistake on their, they just, their economics was off. They didn't realize that banks could effectively expand the money supply 
even if they just said to someone, okay, you've got, you know, we'll grant you a loan. You got a thousand dollars now on your checking account. We're not going to give you paper notes printed with, you know, the, the bearer of this note can redeem it at a bank for $10 in actual legal tender currency or coin. Um, instead though, you can just walk around and write checks on your account. And then if you do that and the merchant presents your, your handwritten check, then we will on our books, you know, you, you write a check for $200 to some merchant on our books, we will just subtract 200 from your checking account and add 200 to the merchant's checking account. Even if there's no paper bank note that's using, you know, facilitating that transaction. Okay. So Peel's act didn't regulate that sort of thing. And so that was, you know, they sort of got us, got around the, the legislation instead of issuing more banknotes that weren't backed up by gold or silver, the British banks could just expand credit by, you know, giving people loans in the form of, okay, we're going to pad your checking account with us now. I mean, you, you owe us the money, of course, you're, you're taking a loan from us, but the way you're going to get that money and be able to spend it is we're now crediting your account with us instead of giving you actual bank notes with our bank name on it that you can go spend. And they're sort of, you know, generic things that don't have anyone's identity tied to them. Okay. So that's how we, this all stuff all comes full circle. And I hope now you can understand how it, how it was. Cause that's the other thing too, is some people say, well, gee, you Austrians complain about Nixon so much and you blame fiat money for the business cycle. But by your own story, shouldn't there have been no inflation and, you know, no price inflation and no business cycles before August 15th, 1971, or before Franklin Roosevelt did what he did in 1933, or at least before the Federal Reserve was created in late 1913. And yet you guys realize that at least later on, there were, you know, in the fifties and sixties, there was significant price inflation. It wasn't 0%. And of course, there were business cycles and depressions or panics, as they sometimes called them, before the Fed was formed. And I'm saying, yeah, that's actually not an embarrassment to Austrian theory. It would be an embarrassment to Austrian theory if there weren't business cycles before that, because Mises was blaming it on the issue of fiduciary media, not on central banks per se. Central banks are bad because they break down the limits on the issuance of fiduciary media, right? So in a free banking environment, if any one bank expands too rapidly, if it you know creates too much credit, then the actual base money gets drained from its vaults and into the vaults of its competitors just through normal you know interbank clearing operations, right? Because now that bank's customers have more money, as it were, than the other bank's customers. And so in general, as they go out and spend in the community, they're going to spend more then people are spending on them. It's like they're going to run a trade deficit with the rest of the community, if you want to think of it like that. And so that's why the actual base money, like gold coins in our example, are going to get drained from the one bank's coffers into the other bank's coffers. Okay, so it's sort of like the, the international classical gold standard, but applied to individual commercial banks, if that's the way you want to think about it. So a central bank deadens that natural feedback mechanism. Because if the central bank is standing there as a lender of last resort, if a particular bank inflates too rapidly and starts losing its reserves, it just calls on the central bank, hey, we need a loan. You know, we made good loans. It's not that we did something stupid. It's just we're having a liquidity crunch here. So we're still solvent. We're just illiquid. 
And then the central bank comes along. Oh, don't worry. We'll, we'll inject some funds, some liquidity to bail you out. We'll lend to you. And so that's what gets them through the crunch. So by removing that discipline, it allows the system as a whole to inflate more is what a central bank does. So central banks are certainly bad and exacerbate the problem, but it's not the essence of the problem according to what Mises said in 1912 and then as he elaborated in 1949 in Human Action as to what is going on with the business cycle. Okay, I will wrap it up there and see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.